Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, January 29th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the best films of the 2020 Sundance Film Festival. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And writer Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. So Ben and Chris are back. Chris, you survived not just one, but two plane flights. Technically three, because I did stop in atlanta on the way there so it was three plane flights yeah people want to know how were the plane flights they were fine i uh I'm, i think i'm pretty much as good as i'll ever be with flying right now which is um i'm beyond the point where i have a complete meltdown and i just feel <laughs> nervous all the time instead so that i guess that's progress i, I went from being like sobbing at the airport to just being like, oh, I feel awful, but I don't sob. So there you go, everyone. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I, I know on the, on the way back, you arrived at the airport early because you mis- mistook your your flight time for an earlier right. flight time. So, like, is it worse being in the airport and, like, the dread knowing that the flight's coming or it doesn't? Uh, it, it depends. So I usually like to get to the airport a little early because I head right to the airport bar and start a drinking <laughs> But uh, the problem with this was we're in Utah, which is, a, you know, a very uh, Mormony area. And they actually have, you know, the Philadelphia airport, you can get there at like 5 a.m. and they'll serve you whatever you want. But in Utah, they don't start serving alcohol until 8 a.m. And I actually got there at 7. So they were like, sorry, we can't serve you because I went to a place that had a bar. And I was like, bummer. So this was actually <laughs> the first time I didn't get liquored up before a flight. So that is also progress, I guess. Wow. <laughs> uh, I know when I first started going to the Sundance Film Festival in 2004, uh, the, the whole bar situation was a lot different. Like on Main Street, if you wanted to go and have a drink at the bar, you actually had to be a member of the bar. So you had to sign wow. up for a membership fee and you had to have someone that was a member basically recommend you. So they had this weird progress uh, process of like you'd go down the stairs to this bar and like there'd be a person that's a member that like basically works for the bar that would sign up for your membership. I don't know. It was like a whole weird thing to get around some kind of like weird Mormon 
laws, but I don't think that's happening yeah. anymore. So I don't know. Hmm. Uh, yeah, and also I remember back in the day at the at the grocery store, uh, they like they had weird like versions of beers and stuff that had less alcohol content because there were some kind of like regulations because of Utah. So wow. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Anyways, people are not listening to this for alcohol. Uh, they're listening to this to find out uh, the best films coming up this year. Uh, Sundance Film Festival uh, is good at that. It's good at discovering like small up-and-comers that we weren't expecting to to be big things coming up. Not just this year, but sometimes like when something gets acquired at Sundance, it comes up uh, the next year. Uh, just because of how long it takes to, you know, you know, just distribute a film. So uh, these are we're going to talk about your eight favorite films that you saw at this year's Sundance Film Festival. And I guess, uh, Chris, let's, we'll go uh, from uh, we'll we'll build up to the, the the one you like the most. So, Chris, at, at the bottom of your list of four, what is the film? Uh, it is Miss Americana, which is the Taylor Swift documentary. Um, I, I went into this with no real expectations. I, it was like sort of the opening night film, and I knew it was going to be big enough that we should do a review for it. So I sort of was just like, sure, what the hell, I'll go see it. And it actually turned out to be pretty enjoyable. Um, I, you know, I don't dislike Taylor Swift's music. In fact, there are several songs of hers I really like, but I don't really know much about her beyond, you know, tabloid headlines. So um this film was kind of eye-opening for me and it made me appreciate her as as an artist and she seems like a you know genuinely good person and uh i was just really impressed with the documentary it was funny it was sweet and a big part of it is really about her sort of literally growing up and realizing that she can use her her voice for things beyond just entertainment you know it's all about how during the, the the primaries last year, she realized, you know, she couldn't sit on the sidelines anymore and, and not get political. And so she finally decided to endorse, uh, you know, Democrat politicians because she was very much against uh, Marsha Blackburn, who is from her home state of Tennessee, because yeah, well, Marsha Blackburn is a monster. And it, that's pretty big because, like you said, she comes from the South and I'm sure she had a large following on the right. Right. And there's there's like a whole scene where she sits down with her her management team and they're like begging her not to do this. They're like, (laughs) look, if you do this, you're going to lose some of her your audience. And she just insists that, you know, she can't sit up back anymore. She has to you know, she has this this powerful voice and she feels like she might as well use it. So uh, it's a pretty you know, uh, that's not to say that it's like an overly political film, like the politics stuff doesn't really come until the end. But I was just pretty impressed with it overall. It's well made. It's not like the best documentary ever. There's a lot of like filler scenes with her just sitting around, you know, being goofy. But, uh, you know, for what I was expecting, which was pretty much nothing, I was I was very impressed with this. How honest of the film is it like does it just make her look great or is there like some some stuff that you you weren't expecting them to show some sides of her? Um, yeah, I, I grappled with this a little bit. I said it in my review, too, that like any film like this where you can tell she had, you know, some sort of input into it, you have to question how honest it is and how much she allowed to be shown or not. Um, I won't say it shows anything negative about her, but it does present her as very human and very, you know, down to earth. And you know, she talks about uh, her eating disorder, which she really hasn't 
ever talked about before until this documentary. So uh, while there's nothing in the movie that makes her look negative, there's a lot of stuff that just makes her look normal, which again, could be all staged for all I know, but it seems, it se- it seemed pretty genuine to me. Ben, number four on your list is a movie called Bad Hair. It is, yes. This is the uh, second feature film from Justin Simeon, who is the writer-director of Dear White People, and he made that movie back at Sundance in 2014 is where that that film premiered, and then he's since gone on to sort of adapt his own movie into a Netflix series, which is uh, mostly very, very good. And now he's back with like a totally different type of thing. This is a 1980s horror thriller about a killer weave. Um, So this uh, sort of like up-and-coming assistant at like an MTV style network in Los Angeles uh, in 1989 is basically forced to get a weave at this place because she is ambitious and wants to move move up in this company and her sort of image obsessed boss is basically saying you have to change your hairstyle in order to uh, you know climb the ladder at this company and the weave is uh, is like <laughs> cursed or something there's like some sort of a mystical element going on here and the weave actually has a taste for blood and a desire to kill people so um, it's a really uh, it's not a full-blown horror movie it's more I would say it's like more campy than full-on scary Um but it's a movie that has a lot on its mind. It reminded me a little bit of Get Out, not only because it comes from, you know, an, an up and coming uh, black filmmaker, but also because both of those are movies that are about forces which are trying to appropriate black culture and like actually literally take over black bodies for nefarious purposes. And I think there's a lot of humor sort of. Uh, woven throughout this, no pun intended there, Um, but uh, and like a ton of references to old school horror movies. There's like a lot of Stanley Kubrick in this movie. There's some major The Shining vibes happening here. Not to say that this movie is on that level, but just in terms of like it's very clear that Justin Simeon is very, very inspired by um, the cinematic uh, uh, landscape that has come before. And it's cool to see a totally brand new type of story um, told from a, a filmmaker with such a, a singular voice um, that also pays homage in in clever ways to um, to some of these like you know big recognizable horror movies that people will definitely know of. So um, I also want to give a very very quick shout out to uh, L. Lorraine, who is the star of this thing, and she's like an unknown actress. I mean, I think she might have been in a couple TV shows, but um, nothing huge. This is her first movie role, and she absolutely kills it. The cast in this thing is pretty impressive but she is like the center of the movie the whole thing is riding on her and much in the same way that justin simeon sort of launched tessa thompson to stardom back in 2014 i would not be surprised to see l lorraine sort of get that same level of acclaim after her work here so hopefully this will ser- serve as sort of a uh, a launch pad for her but yeah i had a lot of fun with bad hair do, do you know if this has distribution because i'm looking at the list of sales i don't see this on there uh, I have not heard that it's been picked up yet, so um, I, I would not be surprised to see, you know, like a an A24 type um, pick this up because yeah. it, it sort of it definitely has that kind of vibe to it to me. Um, but yeah, like I said, it, it's it's very much like a uh, a vision from a singular filmmaker. It's like only Justin Simeon could have made this movie, and I really liked that aspect of it too. Very cool and very very good for Justin because I remember back in the day where we'd go to like these Paramount press screenings and he'd be the guy like signing us in because yeah, he used to work yeah. as a publicist and now his career is like taking off completely. Uh, okay, Chris, what is your number three movie? Horse Girl. 
Horse Girl. This is a Netflix movie starring um, Alison Brie. And uh, this really uh, caught me by surprise because I wasn't really sure what to expect. The trailer was a bit odd and uh, I, I was sort of just like, I don't know what this is. So uh, it starts off seeming like a really quirky rom-com where Alison Brie plays this uh, very shy uh, young woman who works at like a craft store and she doesn't really have any friends. And one night uh, it's her, it's her birthday. So her roommate sort of like drags her into having fun and sort of sets her up on a date and the date goes really well and everything is nice and sweet. But then the movie starts turning like really, really dark. And uh, we, we find out that her character's um, grandmother and her mother had mental uh, health problems and she starts to experience sort of uh, these issues too, where she um, she's having like really weird dreams and she starts to get really paranoid. And she also starts, starts to experience um, lost time where she'll sort of black out and wake up somewhere and she has no idea how she got there. And she starts to suspect a bunch of things. I, I kind of don't want to give it away because the less you know, the more interesting the movie is, but it, it, it's, it's, it was very uh, fascinating to me how this movie starts off very, very light and funny and almost goofy. And then it, it gets very uh, disturbing and dark and it sort of ends up in this middle ground where it has amusing things in it, but it, it's surprisingly uh, unsettling. And I was, I was not expecting it to turn out the way it did. And uh, Alison Brie is, is great in this. I mean, I, I like her in general as an actress, but I think this might be like her, her best performance. Cause she has a lot to juggle here. She has to be both, you know, funny and also playing a character who's sort of losing her mind. So uh, this is, this will be on Netflix very soon. I think in February. So it's worth checking out when it arrives there. Yeah. And this comes from uh, Jeff Bienna. Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, I believe so. Yeah. And uh, he wrote, I heard Huckabee's back in 2004 and he made his directorial feature directorial debut with the movie called Joshi, which I think I saw at Sundance a few years ago. So um, yeah. Interesting. Right. He also directed um, Life After Beth and The Little Hours, and I don't really like either of those films. So to me, this is like the best thing he's done. Okay, very cool. Uh, Ben, what is the next film on your list? It is called Come Away, and I think I talked about this one in our most anticipated discussion that we had a few days ago. But uh, this is the movie from Brenda Chapman, who is a uh, uh, primarily known as an animation director. This is her first live-action film. She was the director of movies like Prince of Egypt and Pixar's Oscar-winning film Brave. And Come Away is a uh, an origin story of Peter Pan and Alice in Wonderland. And they sort of those characters grew up as siblings in this story. And it's about what happens to them before they sort of go their separate ways and become the uh, fairy tale characters that we know and love. So um, I, I really like this movie a lot. I think uh, Brenda Chapman is an excellent filmmaker. I have been waiting to see if she would jump into live action for a long time. She She's one of those filmmakers that really hasn't done very much. And every time she makes something, I'm always interested, but just sort of like, you know, th there's there's too long a gap between her uh, on her filmography there. And I'm, I'm really glad that this movie is as good as it is, because hopefully it will serve again as sort of like a launch pad for her to be able to, um, you know, roll that momentum and, and keep it going into uh, into feature films. But for this one, I really, really liked it a lot. It's got a great cast. Um, Angelina Jolie, David Oyelowo, uh, those two play the parents of 
the three kids at the center of this story. Yeah, there are three. I don't know what that means. Hmm. Hint, hint, hint. Could something terrible happen to one of them? I don't know. Uh, all three <laughs> of the kids are, are very good, too. Um, I think my favorite thing about this movie, though, is, you know, you, you might have heard me talk about it's a prequel to uh, fairy tale stories. A lot of times prequels are tricky, right? Like you have to nod to expected tropes and, and imagery that, you, that you're familiar with. But if the movie just becomes a checklist of familiar things, the end result is awful. So Come Away does, it basically um, takes a page out of Klaus's playbook, the Klaus, the animated movie on Netflix right now, that is uh, the Santa Claus origin story. And the reason I say that is because both films really do feel like totally organic with all of those references. It's almost never, um, you know, you almost never feel the filmmaker sort of turning to the camera and winking at you like and nudging you in the side like hey get it see what we're doing here like get this reference it's all those references are there but it's actually fun to see how they uh, are incorporated into the story because most of the time they're in sort of like slightly unconventional ways and just really fascinating ways and um, yeah most of the fun of this movie is just sort of seeing how all of the things that you know about these characters um, come to be through this uh, this completely separate original story that that's being told here. So that's called Come Away. I don't know if this one has distribution yet either, but um, it, it's a really great family movie. It's uh, I, I think you know top tier performances from everybody involved. So I, I would not be surprised if this becomes like a big family hit if it gets released later this year. Yeah, it doesn't have distribution yet in America, um, but I, I'm I'm guessing by the big names in this that it's going to get something somewhere. So, okay. Yeah. Uh, Chris, what is number two on your list? Number two is Shirley, which is uh, a film I talked about in our most anticipated for Sundance. Um, it's from Josephine Decker who directed Madeline's Madeline and uh, it stars Elizabeth Moss as Shirley Jackson, who wrote the haunting of Hill house and the lottery and other disturbing uh, stories and books. And um, this was great. Uh, it's it's not a biopic because it's a fictional story. It didn't actually happen, but it draws on you know events from Shirley Jackson's real life. And the story is about this young couple who move into the house that Shirley Jackson lives in with her husband, played by uh, Michael Stuhlbarg, who is a college professor. And um, they find out right away that you know this this the Shirley Jackson and her husband had this very um, unconventional relationship, and Shirley Jackson is uh, not, uh, for lack of a better word, a normal person in that she's uh, prone to sort of like fits of rage and bouts of depression, and she has times where she can't get out of bed, and she has other times where she just lashes out at people. And she's a very difficult per person to live with, basically. And um, the the young woman in in the couple sort of is like terrified of her at first, but then they sort of start to form uh, a bond. And uh, mean, in, in the meantime, Shirley Jackson is writing this novel inspired by a true story about um, a, a student from her husband's college that, that disappeared and the, and she's sort of like investigating this disappearance. And uh, I feel like if, if a quote unquote normal director had made this, it would have been sort of like a stuffy biopic, but Josephine Decker does all this really interesting, weird stuff where the camera sort of never sits still. And there's all these very strange sound effects that shouldn't be there. Like there's sounds of like trains running by and, and insects and stuff that, you know, even when they're like in houses, like, 
there's no reason to be hearing these sounds. And uh, that also could have backfired, but it works very well because it sort of puts us into Shirley Jackson's uh, fragmented headspace. And Elizabeth Moss is is so good, which is like nothing new at this point. Everyone knows she's a great actress. And somehow she's found a way to always play uh, difficult, troubled women and always give a different performance. Like, you know, she's, you know, she's played several female characters who have um, sort of fractured mental states and she never does it the same way, no matter how many times she plays that character. And she's so good here. And I don't know, I don't know how this is going to play with like a wide audience because it's such a strange movie, but I I loved it. I've seen a lot of critics uh, love this film, so I'm sure it's going to get acquired at some point, but it it doesn't have a home quite yet. Uh, But let's go from Shirley to Sylvie. Ben, tell us about Sylvie's Love. Yeah, Sylvie's Love is the sexiest movie I saw at Sundance. This is a a period piece romance that takes place over several years in the 1950s, late 50s and early 60s. And it stars Tessa Thompson and uh, rising star Namdi Asomuga, I think is how you pronounce his name. He actually used to be an NFL football player. I had no idea about this. I'm, I'm writing my review of this movie as we speak. And I just looked into this guy and I was like, wait, what? Uh, and he's also like, produced some movies and stuff too i've never seen this person on screen before but he is so so good in this movie and their chemistry is so hot that i thought the screen would catch on fire this movie is like um it's like a throwback to really really old school like golden age of hollywood uh just swooning simmering romance movies and it's about um he, he plays a uh like a jazz saxophone player and she plays like an aspiring uh, television executive and they it's sort of like a star-crossed lover story where she's engaged to somebody else and they meet and fall in love and um you know s- several years go by before they see each other again and then uh they reconnect later in life and it's this whole like um it's just such a uh the, the score is it's like a sumptuous movie. I that's a weird word to use, I think, but it that's really what it feels like this old school throwback that just like wraps you up in this blanket of um, warm cinematography and excellent music and the the soulfulness of these performances. And um, man, it is just like an enchanting, lovely movie. So uh, I don't know if this one has a distribution yet either, but it, like, it does not. OK. Yeah, I mean, if you're a fan of movies like, uh, you know, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, for example, like you're going to love this movie if it comes out. Hopefully it's going to come out soon because um, I think the performances are, are, yeah, like I said, just really, really great. And and the whole vibe of this movie, I want to live in this world and, and listen to this incredible music and um, spend more time with these characters. It's it's really, really good. While you've been talking about this movie, I've been I've been staring at the the only still from this movie that's been released, and it has a couple like on a street, and it, it really does give you like it, it's su- such a beautiful shot, and it does definitely give you like uh, La La Land kind of vibes or mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, I'm I'm excited to see this, uh, and again, it doesn't have a distributor yet, but that doesn't mean it won't because uh, you know it has some big people in it, so I'm sure it's gonna get out there. Uh, Chris, the number one film that you saw at the Sundance Film Festival. Uh, yes, and this is something that does have a distributor now. Well, Go USA picked it up, and I honestly am shocked anyone picked this up because I can't see this getting a conventional release, and that is Possessor, the new film from Brandon Cronenberg, who is the son of David Cronenberg. And I was excited to see this going into it, but uh, holy shit, this um, 
this blew me away. I have never really seen a film like this before. And it, it, it literally just stunned me watching it. The, the closest I can compare this to is sort of like a horror movie inception, but even that really isn't right. Um, uh, Andrew Riseborough plays um, a contract killer, but she doesn't actually physically kill anyone herself. She works for this very um, elaborate company that has found a way to literally implant her consciousness into other people's bodies. So her, they put her mind into the body of someone else, and that someone carries out the murder and then kills themselves, and then that's how she gets out of that person's head so it's like the perfect crime because to, to everyone else it looks like the person she's possessing is the killer when really she's been hired to do it and um it's about her you know being hired to go into the mind of this guy played by christopher abbott and kill basically this guy's entire um uh, family to be he's about to marry this this woman who's this the daughter of a very rich man and it's all about that and um things don't go according to plan and uh that's basically all i'll say about that but uh the look and the feel of this film is so um incredible it's it's probably the the most violent film i've ever seen in my life and that's saying wow. something it's it's insanely violent to the point where the audience i saw it with was sort of just like gasping every every 10 seconds and I know that gives a, a sense that, oh, it's like a gratuitously violent thing. And I guess it is gratuitous, but that's sort of the point because the movie is really all about um, how Andrea Riseborough's character is trying to divorce herself from humanity. Like early in the film, we see her uh, reunite with her husband and her child that she's estranged with. And she has to sort of like rehearse being human before she goes to see them because she doesn't really know how to display those emotions anymore because she spent so much time brutally murdering people. And it's, uh, it's just such a brutal, unrelenting, dark movie. Like there's, there's not an ounce of joy in this film. So if uh, it's, it's definitely not going to be for everyone. And I could see this turning off a lot of people, but um, I'm the type of person who's always looking for something new in movies. You know, I see so many movies that there's there's almost nothing new to me when it, when it comes to a film. So when I sit down and I watch a movie that seems completely unique and completely unlike anything I've seen before, I'm I'm kind of floored. And and Ben can attest to this because I came back to the condo after it ended. It was late at night and I was just like raving about this film. I couldn't like shut up about it. And <laughs> like beforehand, I, when I went to see, it was like a late showing and I was exhausted and I was like, all right, I'm going to watch this. I'm going right back to the condo and right to bed. And instead I came back so hyped up. I, I like couldn't sit still. I was like losing my mind talking about it. <laughs> and this premiered at the Cannes Film Festival and was sold to Arclight Films there, which has distributed some films like uh, First Reformed, I think maybe um so yeah we should be seeing that somewhere if if not That's on interesting. the thing if if Wellgo usa has it now i wonder if arclight just bought it for like international territories or something oh is but that think... oh, is that Wellgo? okay sorry maybe yeah. i think yeah. arclight is the international distributor for this because oh. a any a24 distributed uh first reformed in in the yeah, U yeah, USA. yeah. Yeah, while I was saying that, I was like, that's not correct. But, uh, yeah, it's so confusing, the world of international releases. But uh, I'm sure we'll get this at least on streaming. Yeah, on I can't imagine this getting, like, a standard theatrical release. I don't even know 
like if you're gonna rate this film it's gonna end up with like nc-17 it's that violent i can't imagine this getting like an r wow okay so the film that like from my brief look at the sundance lineup uh the one that i think i was more most excited about is because it it just seems the most accessible and that is palm springs that this sold for a record amount it beat the the record by 69 cents it sold uh for what is it 17.5 million and 69 cents uh to beat out uh the birth of a nation uh which came out of uh, you know 2016 uh but by the way this year at Sundance, there's been some big deals. Uh, like, there was a documentary that was sold for $12 million. Wow. Of course, it was sold to tw- for $12 million to Apple, who has, you know, a few money to throw around. But uh, And it was a, a film called Boy's State. Neither of you saw that, Boy's State? Mm-mm. No. Uh, so that sold for $12 million to Apple and A24. So that will be coming at least to Apple TV, if not to theaters. Uh, but, Ben, your favorite movie of this year's Sundance Film Festival, Palm Springs. Yeah, uh, I'm kind of shocked about this. Uh, you know, reading the description of the movie, I thought that, you know, this movie could go either way. I, I was definitely excited about it because it's a it's a romantic comedy that stars Andy Samberg, uh, who is from The Lonely Island and Brooklyn Nine-Nine, stuff like that. And uh, Kristen Milioti, who is I know her from How I Met Your Mother. She's also in The Wolf of Wall Street. She's been in a bunch of stuff. You definitely recognize her. Um, and it, it was basically like the the program guide sort of danced around what this movie is actually about. But since the movie uh, debuted and and sort of got this rapturous praise and everything, I feel like I can give away the premise of the movie here, especially since it got picked up by Neon and Hulu. And when they market this thing, they're going to have to address the the basic premise of the movie. So yeah. I guess if you don't want to know anything at all about Palm Springs, skip ahead for a few minutes. But uh, it's basically like a Groundhog, di- uh, Groundhog Day style romantic comedy. So, um, Peter, you know, you were talking about it being uh, you know, one of your most anticipated movies just based on the the premise yeah. and the cast and, and location alone. But now that it's a time loop movie, oh, I, you're I, a I had heard fan of those. Yeah, I had heard that. That was one of the reasons I was excited about this. Okay, yeah, I had no idea. So when I walked in, I was like, oh, wow, they're doing they're doing this. But th- that's the thing about this movie is it, it's not like it builds up to that. You know, like pretty, you know, within the first like 10 or 15 minutes that that's what's happening. And that's why I think this movie is really interesting because it takes a lot of the, um, you know, the sort of like well-worn elements of that that genre and it tweaks them a little bit. Like, uh, you know, by most of these movies, it's like you have to get through the whole movie before you see characters who have like completely mastered their surroundings. Like Bill Murray at the the end of Groundhog Day when he's doing all that ridiculous stuff with like the, the chainsaw ice carving and all of that or like Tom Cruise, like, you know, at the end of Edge of Tomorrow where he knows every single step to take on the battlefield and all that. This movie sort of opens with that, where Andy Samberg's character has been hooked into this time loop for a long, long time, and he has already mastered his entire environment, and he is just under the impression that nothing matters because he can't escape uh, every day. He It ends, but he wakes up the same as before, so he's tried everything he can think of to sort of escape this thing, but just has settled into this life where... He just messes with people and kind of like does whatever he wants and just lays around and drinks all day. And then Chris and Miliati's character uh, gets sucked into the time loop with him. And then things get really, really interesting from there. So um, that's the the basic premise. But those two actors are so, so good in this movie. It's also a film that is I mean, it's, it's like a laugh out loud comedy. It's funnier than 
most of the studio comedies that I've seen over the past at least two or three years. Uh, I would not be surprised if this ends up being the funniest movie of 2020. Um, but it's also like a, a comedy that actually has something to say. It, it, it tackles these really like profound ideas about long-term relationships and, and how um, a really, really terrible looking situation on the surface could be uh, uh, viewed slightly differently with a, a shifted perspective. And, and there's a, a great performance by J.K. Simmons in this and a supporting character that I don't want to give away. So this movie has a lot going on, but um, it's the funniest thing I saw. It's the most mainstream thing I saw there. So it kind of makes me feel like a little bit of a, a basic bitch to to be like, yeah, I loved this movie because it's clearly like the most commercial thing at that I've I think that I've ever seen at any Sundance. But um, man, it's so good. It's so solid. The script is great. Uh, the performances are awesome. I just want to like watch this movie over and over again. Yeah. And uh, Neon acquired this and Neon uh, has released some some very edgy stuff. This probably might be the most accessible thing that they've acquired, right? I think so. And and like uh, the Lonely Island, you know, they produced this movie, so they didn't direct it. Uh, the, the comedy trio of Akiva Schaefer, uh, Yorma Taconi and Andy Samberg, they didn't direct this movie. Most of the movies that they make end up like tanking at the box office and eventually become cult hits. But this one definitely is going to be a mainstream hit when it comes out because the the premise and the yeah the, just the combination of all the elements that I men- mentioned a second ago, like that this is this is going to be a big deal i think i will say this there, there's oftentimes like that big buzz out of sundance and it makes a big deal like there was this movie probably like 10 years ago now called hamlet 2 which i think sold for 10 million dollars it was like one of the biggest it was the biggest deal at the time at sundance and no one's seen it so so you never know you never know uh but it does sound like it has all the ingredients to to hit the mainstream public i, I was wondering did you guys hear about any other buzzed about films at the Sundance Film Festival? Because Sundance is notorious of, you know, you're going in between screenings, you're on these shuttle buses, you overhear people talking, and then, then you end up having to change your entire schedule of plans because you hear about this great film you never heard of. Was was there anybody, any buzz going around Park City for films that you just didn't get to that y- you, you want to put on people's radars? Uh, Chris, you you had like that <laughs> that one situation where uh, you had the option to go to one movie and you chose the other one, and then you, it, it sounds like you made the wrong choice, right? Yes, there's a movie called uh, Minari, which um, stars Stephen Yeun, and um, it's a twenty it's an a twenty four film, and it's about uh, a, a Korean family living in America, and um, I I had heard really good stuff about this, and. Uh, my last full day there, um, the press screening for this was the same time as a press screening for another film called The Amulet, which is a horror film. And, you know, I'm a horror guy. So I was like, all right, I'm going to see Amulet because I'm I'm the horror guy. It'll probably be good. And uh, The Amulet was the worst film I saw at Sundance. It made me want to die. It was so bad. <laughs> and uh, and uh, everyone says Minari is great. So I, I'm I'm really kicking myself for not seeing that because... Uh, according to everyone I talked to, it, 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 it's phenomenal. I really wish I had seen that because if I had there, you know, this was a weird year in that nothing other than possessor. And I guess surely nothing this year seemed quote unquote great to me, but everything I saw was uh, for the most part, enjoyable or watchable. And amulet was the only thing I saw that I outright hated. So if I had just seen Minari, I would have had a good year, but 
I didn't. So there we are. <laughs> is, is there any other breakout films that you guys just didn't get a chance to see? Hmm. I'm trying to think. Um, <laughs> it's that, weird. That this, kind of year. This felt like a very muted year. I mean, you know, for all I, I've only, but this is my second year. But last year felt bigger than this year. And yeah. this year felt kind of muted. And I don't know. That might just be I just didn't see the right things or, or what. But uh, that was my experience. Ben? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of right there with you. I, and also, like, in terms of the movies that I did see, I think I came away seeing... 13 movies and a, a VR experience that I'll talk about here in a second. But uh, of those, I think only two of them I really didn't like. And the rest of them I either thought were were good or very good. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was a, a more quiet year, but I think it was just like solid. You know, like the, most of the stuff I saw was like, yeah, this is a, a pretty good movie. So um, it, I guess that's like a higher than normal batting average for Sundance because a lot of times you you get more of a, a dramatic mix where it's like the highs are way higher, but the lows are really, really low. And I, I, luckily, I didn't have that kind of mix this year. I remember there was this one year that like Whiplash was like the opening film. <laughs> we saw that and it was like starting the festival off with like the biggest explosion and then the rest not uh, being quite as good. But yeah. yeah. Um, OK. Uh, anything different or notable of uh, like about the Sundance Film Festival this year in general? Um, I think they, they changed the way that the bus system works this year or something. I'm not sure exactly how, but uh, the buses were definitely running way slower than normal. So that was unfortunate because, you know, you're, you're relying on that transportation to get you all the way across this, this tiny town, um, which like you can walk a lot of places, but it takes, you know, 30 or 45 minutes sometimes to walk from one theater to another that you really need to go to. And, uh, when you're, when you're running things on on a tight schedule, uh, sometimes that just won't work. So you're, you're really hoping that the bus system works out really well. And it was kind of hit or miss this year, but, uh, yeah, in terms of like programming and stuff, I'm not sure. I, I, Chris, how many movies did you end up seeing? Have you counted yet? I have it. I think it's sort of it's just 13 or 14. I'll have to I'll have to count. Yeah. So like that's pretty good for two people. Yeah. And I feel like we got I don't think we had a single crossover movie on our on our whole, uh, I guess, joint schedules. So I feel like we got a, a good whatever, almost 30 movies or something. That's like a, a decent cross section of the programming that this year had to offer. And I think, you know, if both of us came away like relatively pleased with it, that's that probably speaks pretty highly to the the quality of the programming overall this year. For sure. And you, you mentioned you went to this VR thing. Is this the thing downtown where they have like a a whole bevy of like VR demos? No. So th- this year they did a lot of that stuff um, right there in Park City. That I think they call it the New Frontier section. Yeah. And uh, a lot of times, I mean, for, for years and years, Sundance has been you know, experimenting with virtual reality and like all sorts of like um, alternate forms of uh, storytelling involving technology and stuff like that. And I just never really have time to get to any of that. But I had a big gap in my schedule this year. And there was this uh, VR experience called Spaced Out that I had heard about and was kind of fascinated uh, by. And the thing is, you it's like an underwater VR experience. And I'd never even heard of this before, but apparently it comes from uh, a company called Ballast VR, which some of you listening to this may have like done some of their stuff before. I'd literally never heard of this company, but they've developed like the first waterproof VR headset. And they have uh, sites set up around the country 
where you can put on these VR headsets and like go down water slides and it looks like you're, you know, sliding through wait, dinosaur wait, times and stuff like that. Yeah, I know. I'd never heard of them before. Uh, and I've done several like big VR things here in Los Angeles, but um, maybe because we don't have like water parks and, and pools and, and stuff like that. We do have that water are, parks. Like, we have a water park in San Dimas and in Orange County, but like I've heard of like on roller coasters doing VR, which sounds like I would be sick. But yeah, uh, water, like, what happens, like, once you hit the water? Like, it feels like I would be, like, you would not know. I guess your body knows what which way is up. Anyways. Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, but anyway, so you can look into them yeah. if you want to. I'm going to try to write uh, an article about this and, and dive in and, and, you know, do some more research on the companies behind this thing. But Spaced Out is really, really fascinating because it's like they took actual archived recordings of the Apollo 11 mission to the moon and they play that underwater in in this pool and it's actually it was you had to go to sundance headquarters because that was the only pool in the area and you could line up and like you know uh select a time to to do this experience you change into a bathing suit they they wrap a like flotation device around your stomach and you just like lay there face down on the water and you put the <laughs> vr headset down under the water and it has a snorkel coming out of it so you can breathe and your ears are underwater so you're hearing you know in this really cool echoey underwater kind of way these archived recordings of the of the mission to the moon while you're seeing these really psychedelic images of um, like planets and uh, there's a reference to uh, Georges Méliès trip to the moon uh, with the the rocket ship in the moon's eyeball you probably you're you're yeah. probably familiar with that image that was in there but you're just like sitting there floating and you're you're tied to a um like a uh, safety hook kind of thing where you're not just going to like float off and hit the wall or anything so you can really just like peacefully sit there and not move and just get completely immersed in this really weird uh, VR experience where you're hearing these, you know, NASA scientists and, and technicians and stuff talking. And it really, I think it, it, it sort of gets to the experience of like what the astronauts must have felt like going to completely uncharted territory. But visually, it's not just, you know, our boring ass gray cratered moon. You're seeing like all these crazy colors and like, uh, mush giant mushrooms that are the size of trees and like all sorts of Alice in Wonderlandy type of um, of imagery and the camera is like you know slowly pushing forward so you feel like you're sinking into the <laughs> into the image even though you're not going anywhere uh, and it ends with this um, this like big hallway kind of thing and it reminded me so much of the ending of Interstellar where Matthew McConaughey is just like zooming through this you know four-dimensional space or whatever and it, it's very much like that and by with with the combination of the colors and the um, planets and all this stuff it really taps into this sort of primal um, like a plane of existence where I think if aside from doing drugs this is probably the closest <laughs> that anybody will ever get to physically experiencing what it might be like to uh, to experience the end of 2001 a space odyssey like that's the level of uh, artistry that's on display here in terms of like what it does to your brain chemistry while you're underwater doing this really weird vr thing and i talked to the artist who um is responsible for this and he was saying that their hope right now is to scale it out and and have this available to a lot of the where um yeah to <laughs> that... a lot of the places where where ballast vr this this uh, virtual reality company currently has um 
it's setups and infrastructure already in place. And he was saying like, really all you need, it's so much cheaper than something like the void or, you know, some of these other big VR companies, because you don't have to rent out or, or, or you know, build a huge warehouse and all the, the infrastructure that goes along with that pools, uh, public pools, water parks, whatever, all that stuff is already there. So they, you know, in terms of like, um, being able to get it out to an audience, they just have to like strike deals with the people who own that stuff and or those locations and uh, they're good to go. It's all like, you know, the the technology is 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 right there with you. So uh, this could be something that you actually have a chance to uh, maybe experience one day and it's called Spaced Out and I would definitely recommend if you, if you see anything remotely like this, um, definitely check it out. And again, I'm going to try to write it up uh, on, on SlashFilm.com sometime soon. Uh, I'll try to transcribe some of the best quotes that I got from the uh, the digital artists um, who, who created this thing. But it's really, really fascinating stuff and um, I'm glad I had the chance to and, and the time to do it while I was at Sundance. That sounds insane. Like yeah. this company expects to make money off this? Yeah, uh, I don't know. I'm not sure what their what their business model is exactly, but maybe I can reach out to the head of the company uh, and try to get some quotes for from them too. Because I'm I'm like going into this like completely flabbergasted that this technology and and all of that uh, this, this waterproof version exists, and I've never heard of this before. But um, it's a really cool like the zero gravity sensation of being underwater and and floating there. Um, really added to the whole experience. So I thought it was really, really cool. Like on one hand, I really want to experience this. On another, I, I just feel like there's not going to be any place I can experience this at. Uh, I know they have like VR centers. Like there's even like a, a thing downtown LA called Two Bit Circus that has a lot of VR stuff. And they even have like some of the more complicated ones where you actually get on like this whole robotic setup that like is set up to like make it feel like you're flying. Um, so you're That's like kind of what this feels like you're I mean you're you're not moving but it really like the way that the the camera imagery moves or whatever inside the the headset it makes you feel like you're you're flying across the surface of these planets it's wild crazy crazy uh, Chris you didn't want to try the VR experience well I, think... I figured since Ben was doing it I wouldldn't do it also I don't <laughs> Want to Don't. get in a bathing suit and? <laughs> okay, so uh, most of your reviews, I think, are on the site right now. Are you guys still behind a, a, a few? Yeah, I think I still have uh, two more to do, and then hopefully, yeah, I can put something together for this VR thing. Chris, you're you're pretty close to done, though, right? I, I have two more as well. Okay, yeah. Yeah. so I will link the Sundance category in the show notes if you want to check out all the full reviews for. Not just the films that we mentioned here, because we only mentioned eight films, and you guys saw close to 30. So there's a lot more to discover. Uh, Check that out on SlashFilm.com. This podcast, SlashFilm Daily, is published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. And rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you tomorrow. The one thing I'm wondering, Ben, is, like, you received an email from a publicist, and you're like, yeah, I'm in. I'm going to, like, instead of going to a movie, I'm going to go get my bathing suit, head to uh, the pool, and do... (laughs) 
Well, I didn't bring a bathing suit with me, but they had, I, I think they must have gone to Target or something and mass purchased a ton of bathing suits for all the journalists. And, and I think this might have been open to the public as well. So people could just come and like try on the bathing suit or not try on the bathing suits, but just put on like a brand new bathing suit. And then I don't know what they did with them afterwards. Hopefully they washed them. And, I don't know. But um, the one that I tried on or, or used was uh, was untouched. So that's all I cared about in the moment. But like... Did you just get an email? It was like, come to the Sundance pool and we'll... Well, yeah. Every every year there's always, you know, you, they always send out press releases about the VR stuff that they have. And I saw this one because uh, because of the underwater component. Now, I, I just never heard of that technology at all before. And I was just like, man, this is really interesting. I can't believe that this exists. And then uh, it just so happened where I had a, a big opening one day um and in my in my movie going uh calendar and i was like all right i'm i'm going for it i gotta see what this thing's all about <laughs> crazy okay 